Well, today we're starting our series on 1 Corinthians. If you know the book of 1 Corinthians, it's a book that has so many issues in it. If you don't know it, we're in for quite a ride. There's all kinds of issues that come up. Um, It was written in the early 50s AD, so one of the earliest books of the New Testament. It was written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth, the church he founded on his second missionary journey. You can read all about that in Acts chapter 18. If you're interested in geography, so we know the setting, if you've got good eyesight as well, Corinth is down there. So sort of southern Greece. It was a really important city at this point. It was a Roman colony. It was the capital of Greece at the time. Um, It was a place where there was a lot of trade, there was a lot of commerce, people were very wealthy. And it was also a place of a lot of paganism. The temples in um, Corinth had a thousand prostitutes who worked there. And Paul plants a church into this environment. And very quickly, this church starts to get problems. Because this was a Gentile church, predominantly. They weren't Jews who'd become Christians, but they were Gentiles. And so it's a church that he has to address issues with. You know, when God moves in our lives, quite often things get messy. I don't know if you've noticed that. But quite often when God starts to challenge issues in our life, things get messy. And as we read the book of Corinthians, what we see is that church life has got messy. And God, through Paul, will step in and start to address some of those things. Because, you know, God never wants to leave us in the mess of our life. He wants to move us forwards and onwards. So that's the setting. If you've got a Bible in front of you, you might want to turn to the book of 1 Corinthians. Good place to start. Page 1080, and I'm going to read chapter 1 to us. Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother with a name beginning with S. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always give thanks to my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been rich, enriched in every way, with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming his testimony about Christ among you. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift, as you eagerly await for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end, so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. He has called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there will be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. Still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you, except Crispus and Gaius, so no one can say that you were baptised into my name. Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 
But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where are the wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world, though its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to them whose God has called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray, shall we? Lord, as we start this great letter to the church in Corinth, I want to pray that you will give us wisdom, you will give us your spirit, you will open our eyes and our hearts to see those things that are most important today. And as we look at this first chapter on division and the centrality of Christ, Lord, help us to to just follow your lead. Help us to follow in the way that you're calling us to. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you were Paul writing to the church in Corinth, where on earth do you start? This church that is sort of really blowing up over spiritual gifts, over sexuality, over pride, over all these other things. You know, Corinth was a difficult city to be a good pagan in, let alone a Christian. It was so immoral. That was the kind of place it was. Imagine trying to pastor that lot. Came across this this week. (laughs) Just in case you're wondering, I'm 42 in a few weeks. That was why it sort of really struck home to me. Stressful, isn't it? You imagine trying to pastor that church in Corinth and trying to lead them forward. It's a difficult thing. But you know, I've been in church all my life. I've been part of a church since I was this sort of height. And I've seen churches that have gone through really bad times of division. One of my first memories, actually, probably at the age of two, is stood on a chair in Poynton Baptist Church singing When the Road is Rough and Steep. Anyone remember that song? Don't start singing, but that's that's the song I remember. But over the years, I've seen churches struggle. I've been involved in churches that have actually closed. Not that I've been ministering, just in case you're wondering. Some churches that have divided into factions. I was in a church as a teenager that really blew up over the whole issue of spiritual gifts. And a whole load of people went and left, started at their own church that then collapsed. It was awful, awful, awful. Division. Division is a big issue. And division is where Paul starts us off. You know, church in Corinth, if you want to get going forward, if you want to get going in terms of your belief in Christ, You've got to be united. You have got to be united. 
So Paul starts us off. He starts us off in good Greek letter writing. I'm sure we all know the format of a letter. You say hello. You introduce yourself. This is what Paul does. He gives his status as an apostle. And then he gives thanks for the church in Corinth, right the way down through to verse 8. He's in positive mode, thanking God for all that he's done in the church. And then we get this, an appeal for unity. The word that Paul uses for appeal is about as strong as you can get. He's saying, I appeal, I urge you, I encourage you in the strongest possible language to be united. Because he's been told that actually people are going off into little factions, into groups following this person or that person. Now, if Corinth wouldn't have been a big church, you might have had 30 or 40 people probably meeting in a house. And already that group of people, that small group of early believers, is descending into factions. Corinth was quite a factious city anyway. People were really into celebrity, sound like today's culture. And these big celebrity speakers, you know, Paul, Apollos, they, they would have gathered the followers. But it was also a city that was divided ethnically as well. It was a Roman colony, so if you were a Roman, you were top of the pile. You, you were the bee's knees. If you were a Greek, you were a second layer, because you were the native. You actually were from that area. If you were anything else, a Jew, or anywhere else from around the Roman Empire, and happened to move to Corinth, you were right at the bottom of the pile. Look at the three names that we have here. Paul. Paul was a Roman citizen. Top of the pile. Apollos, second layer. Cephas, a Jew, third layer. And then you get the super spiritual people who won't have anything to do with this and say, we just follow Jesus. But they probably do it in the wrong way. Probably with that same sense of celebrity and one-upmanship. So there were big problems. The church wasn't united. And I always get the feeling in verse 13, if you look at your Bible, that Paul is thundering this one out. Is Christ divided? Was Christ, was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptised into the name of Paul? Massive, massive problems in the church in Corinth. Now, it's easy to talk about their problems. It's nice and separated by 2,000 years, a load of culture and a load of history. But what about our problems? What about Lynn Baptist Church at the beginning of 2017? What does division look like in our church? Well, you might sit there and think, surely it's when you all disagree with me. But actually, I don't think it is that. Or perhaps the leadership team. Actually, I think it's something far more subtle, far more subversive and far more dangerous. Now, I actually think it's good in a church when we can disagree well together when we can come in our church meetings, in our small groups, even in church on a Sunday, where we can say, I'm not sure what that means. How, how do we deal with this? Or what do we feel God may be saying? You know, if you come to tough questions on a Sunday night when we're dealing with some of the big issues of the Bible, we disagree with one another. Me and John disagree sometimes, don't we? I think we manage to do it very well. <laughs> but disagreement, discussion, suggestions is all part of what it means to be an alive part of the body of Christ. Division, though, is something totally different. Division is that which starts to separate and becomes dangerous. When I used to, to work as a musician, most of my time was spent teaching the piano, but sometimes, or quite a lot of the time, actually, I used to go around accompanying for various choirs. So I'd be playing the piano, which was good, because I didn't have to deal with the choir. I just sort of sat in the background. And there was one particular choir that I played for. And on the, the face of it, they were united. So when they stood 
on the stage doing a concert, they made a sound that was vaguely like singing. So they were sort of, sort of united. But behind that, there was the most horrendous disunity. When they got to a coffee break in their rehearsal, they'd, they'd break off into factions. Quite a lot of people didn't think the conductor was very good and would talk about it and try and plot how to get rid of him. There were other people who then fell out with each other. One person left, another person then, as a result, refused to get the music out. And it all sort of spiralled, and it was so sad to watch. Do you know what the result was? The result was a very small choir, a conductor who left, and things going down and down and down. Nothing good ever comes out of division. Division sort of works its way in and causes chaos. But you know, this morning, we are not a choir. We're not a football team. We're not even a political party trying to work out what to do with Brexit. But we are the Church of Jesus Christ, centred round his work on the cross, hopefully eager to grow in faith and love, to be loved by one another, to share fellowship and relationship, to love one another because God first loved us. came across this this week. I really like this. Church is not an organization you join. It is a family where you belong, a home where you are loved, and a hospital where you find healing. How sad it is when the hospital becomes the battlefield. How sad it is when the place that is meant to bring healing brings hurt and division and pain and splits people apart. We know every church runs the risk of division. But when it happens, it plays havoc with growth and mission. It takes our eye off the ball. It backs us into the corner and ultimately we risk paralysis because we've lost our focus. So what types of division are there? Well, I'm going to suggest two types because that's really what Paul deals with in Corinthians. There are probably loads more and you can probably think of those as we go on. But division can happen when we get attached to personality. When any particular Christian celebrity or person or church leader or whoever becomes the one with which we filter the message of the gospel. I don't know if you're somebody who who reads a lot of Christian books or perhaps you watch God TV or or whatever. And there can be a tendency sometimes to filter the world through our favourite authors. Maybe Joyce Mayer or Rob Bell or Tom Wright or whoever it is. And until they have spoken, we don't feel we've got anything to say on an issue. Because we're waiting for them to write. We're waiting for that blog to come out. We put them perhaps on that level with Christ. That can even happen in church life. We can start to form factions around particular leaders or personalities. But you know, nothing good will ever come of that. Can I encourage us and appeal to us as a church never to indulge in personality cults? They will never, ever end well. They didn't in Corinth. They never have in the history of the church. And we would never, ever be the exception to that rule. The other thing is around beliefs. Now, beliefs, I'm not talking about critical beliefs of Christian faith, like, you know, Jesus' work on the cross, the resurrection, those type of things. But you know how sometimes in church life we can end up with lots of discussions on sort of slightly fringier issues? Now, the, the kind of things that I've encountered, and you may have encountered these as well, is perhaps your view on the end times, perhaps on the usage of spiritual gifts or worship styles. And it's very easy to start to define ourselves and label ourselves depending on our view on a particular smaller issue other than the centrality of the gospel. And we start to muddy the water. 
Don't hear me wrong. It's important we talk about those things. You know, Paul will go on to talk about all those kind of things. But actually, he starts with talking about Jesus. That's where we start in unity. The cross of Christ. The work of the Messiah. God's plan for salvation. So how do we know if we're breeding disunity? You know, if you're sat here today and you think, well, I don't think I'm breeding disunity. I don't think there's division amongst us. How would we know? I wonder if you've ever found yourself talking about stuff in secret. Perhaps using the words, this church is X, Y, Z. The leadership team are X, Y, Z. The minister is X, Y, Z. But those things will never come to light. They will never face the light of day. They will never be brought for discussion. I would suggest that is the rumbling ground of division. Where those things that we're not prepared to talk about and own and say, actually, we need to discuss this. They start rumbling round in the background of the church, unaddressed. Or perhaps when we become cliquey and negative. Where we're just with our own little groups and we're not loving in the way that God calls us to be. Or when we gossip and we tear down rather than build. Or when we, we count our own views and our own spirituality as somehow higher than what the Bible says. I could go on and on and on, but I'll move us forward. But you see, division is one of those things that can easily sneak in. We've got to know when it's coming. We've got to be prepared to deal with it. But you don't stop division by saying, well, let's not be divided. You solve it by saying, let's be united around what matters. Let's get Jesus back at the centre. If you've got your Bible there, Verses 18 to 25. It's not obvious at all in an English translation. Um, But if you were reading that in Greek, if you can read New Testament Greek, I can't, so I have to rely on the words of others. But apparently this is a hymn, these verses. It's a poem, set out very nicely, like a poem, and it's a hymn about the cross of Jesus Christ. Seems weeks ago since Christmas, doesn't it? I was talking to Danny just before the service. We haven't seen each other since New Year. So we were saying Happy New Year to one another and saying, when do you stop saying Happy New Year? Is it too late still? I don't know. But anyway, it seems weeks ago, doesn't it, since Christmas. And one of the dangers I find as being a a minister is that Christmas comes and I go to so many different events and sometimes I forget to take the time to reflect. It can just be go, 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 get to Boxing Day, sleep. And actually I'm not taking any time to sort of think about What does Jesus' coming mean for me? What does this mean for me? So one thing we've sort of done as a family for the last few years is try to give some time and some space to do something or go to something just to reflect, to spend some time actually thinking, what does this mean? So this year, we went to Chester Cathedral. We thought we'd go for the nine lessons and carols on the day before Christmas Eve. Now, I have no background in sort of Anglican cathedral worship at all. It's all quite alien to me. Um, but we sat there. The cathedral was absolutely packed. Probably 1,500 people in there. And the choir robes out. Yeah, they come in robes, not robes out. Walks out in robes. Get the, the words the right way around. And they're coming down the side of the cathedral. And they're processing. And at the front of them is the dean of the cathedral carrying the cross. Someone's been doing that since 907 A.D in Chester. That's an awful long time, isn't it? 
I don't know, there was something about that image that just caught my attention. And sort of, you know when you feel a bit broken inside by it? I'm thinking of this image of the cross. You know, the rest of it is just the trappings that we put around it, the culture. But this is it. This is what matters. This is what is important. The cross of Jesus Christ. And this is what Paul says, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. This is what the church is for. The church is not here to reimagine a new message, but it's here to retell that old message time and time and time again. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. See, for Jews, the message of a crucified Messiah just seemed like a complete and utter nonsense. How would God let his Messiah die on a cross? For Greeks, the idea that that God would let himself be killed was just stupid. It was ridiculous. They were after wisdom. You know, they wanted to think everything through, and it had to be logical and rational. Verse 20, Paul says, Where are the wise? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher? Where are all you people who think you know what you're talking about, and you think you know what you're on about? You look at the cross. This is probably not the way that we would have chosen to do it. But this is God's way. This is what God has done. The death of Christ isn't about good philosophy. It's not about finding inner peace. It's not about discovering the law of physics. But it's the place of salvation. It's the place where we find unity because that is where we find our relationship with God. God who comes to us in Christ, gave himself for us, takes our sin, becomes our once-for-all sacrifice. The cross is the place where sin is forgiven, where that vertical relationship with God is restored. And because that is restored, we can then get to work horizontally with one another. If that's not restored, we don't stand a chance that way. It has to be there first, that relationship with God. It's the place of unity. No one comes to the Father except by me, Jesus said. No one. It's the only way. The cross is the only way of relationship with Jesus Christ. The cross is also the place of level ground. It's the place where the person who thinks they're the greatest person in the world finds themselves with the person who is absolutely nothing. Leveled by sin and rescued by grace. What an amazing thing Jesus has done dying on the cross for us. All our thinking, all our philosophy, all our works, all our boasting means absolutely nothing. Verse 31. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. What are you boasting in today? Are you boasting in anything? Your own achievements, your own spirituality, your own feeling of righteousness? Or are you prepared to come again to the cross of Jesus Christ and say, this is where? This is the only thing we can boast in. We can boast in what the Lord has done. Tom Wright puts it this way. He says, The crucifixion of Jesus was a one-off event. The one on behalf of many. The one moment in history on behalf of all others through which sins will be forgiven. The powers robbed of their power. And humans redeemed to take their place as worshippers, celebrating the powerful victory of God in his Messiah. And so gaining the Spirit's power to make his kingdom come in this world and the world to come. That's where we find our unity in what Jesus has done. And this is Paul's point. We start here. 
We start with unity at the cross, and then we address everything else. Now, that'd be easy, wouldn't it? Let's just leave that as a theory that sits out there. But I'm very conscious this morning that many of us will have been hurt in church somewhere along our lives. May have been in this church. May have been somewhere else. Maybe something you've sat on for 30 years and you've never dealt with it. And actually, the hurt of division is stopping you from being able to move forward. And this morning, it may be that actually you need to come to God and you need to say, Lord, I need your healing. I need to be able to let go of this so I can move forward. So if that's you today, we're going to sing again just in a a few moments. We're going to sing um, a song that just unifies us around the cross. But if you've been hurt by divided Christians and it's something you need to address, the prayer team will be at the back. Can I really encourage you to go and, and get that prayed with, pray through with somebody? Let's not leave those things of the past without resolving them. Let's be really clear on that. Or perhaps you've been somebody who's been causing division. And actually you need to come in a place of repentance before God and say, actually, Lord, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for those things that I've been saying or those things that I've been doing. Those rumblings that haven't found the light of day but have just been like the motorway in the background. You know, causing that rumble, that noise that's never going anywhere. Or perhaps it's about boasting. Perhaps actually you're boasting in something other than the cross of Christ. And again, Jesus says, this is the point of unity. Unite around me, and then we move forward. I'm hoping all of us want to be united in the cross. United in Christ. So if that's you this morning, you want to be united in Christ, shall we stand together and we'll pray. We're then going to sing, and then we'll leave some space at the end of the service if anyone does need to go and get prayer. So let's pray together. Let's pray, shall we? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the power of Christ be emptied. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Lord, I want to pray for us as a church, first of all. I want to pray that we will be in full unity amongst our purpose to see the message of the cross be proclaimed. Lord, we stand united in what you have done at Calvary. We can do no other but to stand united on this. Lord, I want to pray specifically for us as a church. If there are elements of division, Lord, would you bring those to light and help us to deal with them? Lord, if some of us here this morning are sat on hurts that have been like open wounds for many years, Lord, we look to you for healing and restoration today. Lord, when we boast of things that are not you, that are not of the cross, and not of Christ, Lord, just realign as we pray. Help us to be a Christ-centered church, eager 
to see other people come to that place of knowing you that only happens through the cross. And there may be some here this morning who you've never come to the foot of the cross. You've never come and asked Jesus for forgiveness for sin. And perhaps this morning, that is the first step you need to take, to say, Lord Jesus, I am here. I come in repentance and faith to start that journey of discipleship. Again, if that's you this morning, do come and talk to me or one of the other leaders, and we'd love to pray with you. Lord, it's about you.